You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pray over God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word. Lord, thank you for the study in the Gospel of Luke that we have engaged in over the last couple of years. Just remembering, looking through notes the other day and seeing that the very first sermon in this series was in June of 2014. So we're coming up on two years in the Gospel of Luke. Two years of studying the life of Jesus. Father, we just ask tonight as we uh, jump, jump back in and dive back in, We just pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to hear from you. Spirit, we ask that you would just be here, free to move, free to challenge, free to encourage, and free to to create growth in our hearts so that we might become more like Jesus as a church family and in this community. God, I pray that. I trust that you will do it. So God, we give you this time, ask for you to move in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name. Everybody set? Amen. We will be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, One by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so I have to be a little bit honest as I arrived at this text this week. This was probably kind of my uh, response as I opened it. Oh no, really? That text. The reason that that was my response is I remember preaching a similar text not much less than four or five weeks ago. For those of you that remember the five-week money series we did, we chose a text out of Matthew 
which sounds very similar. And in fact, in Matthew, it is the parallel passage. But here's the interesting thing about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very synonymous in that they have some very similar and same stories in them. And as you read them, I think what happens is you'll pick up a little detail here that was left out here. A little detail slightly different from maybe over here. And what it does is between those three synonymous gospels, we get a much more full picture of what is happening in these stories. Now, John, being one of the gospels of Jesus' life as well, one of those stories, um, has a few places that is similar to those three, but by and large, on its own, can kind of stand by itself but does complete the picture of Jesus. All four of those Gospels seeking to give us a picture of Jesus as our Lord and Savior and our King, the one who comes to save us, the one who comes to change us, and the one who comes to rule over our lives. So as I read this text, I was like, oh, dang, I already preached that. Did you hear like the southern drawl there? That's because I was hanging out with a southern buddy of mine this last weekend, and, um, and I think it kind of stuck with me. And I was like, oh, Dane, here we go. I got to figure out how to preach this. And here's the cool thing, all that rambling to come to this. Cool thing is, as I did say it this week, man, I just saw some things I didn't see in the other text in Matthew that I was super encouraged by. And so right on the onset, I just want to say, My hope and my prayer is that God would use this text this evening, even for those of you that just heard this message recently, that you would hear the nuances and the differences and that you would be challenged to be someone. If there's a big idea, I can pause it because I don't even have it in my notes. It would be this, is that God would like create us into people or transform or change us into people that are, are just really wise and intelligent about the way that we follow him, that we are just focused upon Jesus that Jesus becomes our sustenance, that Jesus becomes um, uh, the only thing that we know can sustain us, that, that Jesus becomes the one that dominates our thinking, that we would be shrewd in the way that we follow him, that we would not be lazy in the way that we follow Jesus, but that we would seek to ask Jesus, the work of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and all of that to just do work in our hearts so that we can become more and more like him. Because here's the reality. Over the last couple of chapters, if you think back to Luke chapter 15, you'll remember where Jesus is sitting, right? He's sitting kind of at a party, like Jesus was kind of a partier, okay? I don't think that that gives us license to party in sin, but Jesus was kind of a partier. He's here and he's gathered with a bunch of people and he's hanging out with the lowest of the low, the sinners and the, and the, and the tax collectors and the religious elite so to speak, in that room and at that party are getting really upset with Jesus. And they're like, what is he doing hanging out with those people over there? Why are you hanging out? They're grumbling among themselves and they're whining and they're complaining. And that's kind of what we saw all throughout Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, you'll remember from the last couple of weeks that then Jesus tells three stories. Tells the story of the shepherd who goes after the lost wandering sheep. And then he tells the story about the woman who loses a coin and she goes chasing down that coin. And then, and then Jesus tells this story about the father. Really, we think it's the son. It's, we really think it's a story about these sons. But the reality is, it's really a story about a father who receives the lost son back and who also isn't afraid to confront the legalistic, religious a son, the hypocrisy in his son that stayed there. 
So three stories, one about a shepherd who chases down sheep, one about a woman who finds her lost coin, another one about a father who shows God's heart for not only lost people who are way on the outside as well as lost people who think they're in, okay? So these are the three stories Jesus is telling. He doesn't leave that place. He's still in the same place. And you think about it like a kitchen table. Jesus is still sitting around the same kitchen table with the same people. All he's doing is making a shift. He's just making a shift and telling a different story. That's basically what Jesus does in, in Luke chapter 16 in these first 13 verses. Is he tells a story about a dishonest manager in verses 1 through 8. And then he tells them to use their worldly wealth to make eternal friends in verse 9. And then he tells them to be faithful with what's been given to them in verses 10 through 12. And then lastly, he tells them not to be mastered by their money in verse 13. Let's chop up verses 1 through 8 real quick. Jesus telling his disciples the story of the dishonest manager. Just think about this for a minute. Like, Why does Jesus tell this story here? Why does he tell this story right here? What, what is significant and important about the reason that Jesus chooses this story? Again, think with me. He has just responded to the religious elite who are grumbling, complaining, and whining about his decision to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. He responds to their complaints by telling those stories. And then after that, he turns his attention to the disciples and he tells this story about the dishonest manager. Notice the setting that Jesus is in. Notice the setting that, that he's telling this story in. Put yourself in the audience for just a moment as Jesus starts talking. Imagine with me that it, what it must have been like to hear Jesus telling all these stories about the lost getting found and, and feel the thickness of the conflict just for a moment. Remember, there's heavy, thick conflict in this room. People are whining and complaining, and Jesus stands up and says, hey, you're not like these three people. You're not like my Father in heaven if you stand there and whine and complain about the people that I've come to hang out with. I came to seek and to save that which was lost, as he says in Luke 19 later. So really, there's a ton of conflict and heaviness in the room. I bet the air was so thick that you could probably chop it with a knife. Ever been in those moments? Right? Ever had those moments where the conflict was that heavy and that thick and the relational, ugh, was just that crazy? What do you do in those moments? And just imagine that Jesus then turns his attention to you and I, away from everyone that has been complaining against him. He turns his attention to you and I as his disciples, and he launches into yet another story, right? And we're like, man, this is going to get good, right? Like, this is going to get really good. We're hanging on the edge of our seats, and then he tells this story about the dishonest manager. I mean, I can just put myself in the disciples' uh, seat for a moment and be like, wait a minute. Like, Jesus, you got like ADHD or something? Like, what's going on here? Like, you're just, did you, did you lose track of where you were at in the timeline? I think Jesus is very intentional. Notice the first verses of the story in verses one through two. What Jesus does in these verses is he describes this wealthy dude who calls his business manager in to meet with him, calls him in for a confrontational meeting. Let me think about this for a moment, right? Business manager, business owner. Business owner says, hey, dude, you need to come here. We need to get together. We need to meet. You've been managing wrongly, right? He's received this report that his right-hand man has been dishonestly wasting what's been entrusted to him, and he meets with him, confronts his dishonesty. 
He also asks for a record of his business dealings and then informs him that his position as a business manager is going to be terminated. He's going to be terminated because of his dishonesty. Ever been in that place? Ever been caught red-handed? Ever thought you were going to get away with something and then suddenly realized, holy smokes, everybody knows what's going on in my life. Thinking that you had that thing hidden, thinking that you had it covered up really well, and then suddenly it becomes a matter of public record. Ever got caught up in making one dumb decision after the next and then found yourself like reaping the benefits and the consequences of your sinful behavior? Like this is a really scary place to be. You put yourself in this place of this business manager who's been caught by the owner. This is a tough place to be, to realize that suddenly all these things that I thought I had hidden are now being unveiled in front of someone else. How do you dig yourself out of that hole? What decisions do you make in those moments? What do you do to get the limelight off of you? What do you do to get yourself out of the mess that you got yourself in? What do you do when you realize that all of the hard work that you've done to protect your image and your investments and your future and your public record are going down the drain because some stupid and selfish and dishonest and sinful spur-of-the-moment decision? What do you do? Notice what the dishonest manager does when he gets caught. What does he do? Jesus says that the manager begins to take an inventory of his pitiful situation, basically. Takes an inventory of it as he's getting confronted. He's like, oh, holy smokes, I'm getting caught. What am I going to do? Starts to take an inventory of his situation right there on the spot when he realizes that his boss is going to fire him for his dishonesty and his mistakes. Realizes he doesn't have a lot of other skills to earn a living with. Doesn't really want to beg. So what does he do? He makes yet another split-second decision. In the moment, he makes this decision to ensure himself some sort of sustainability for the future. Ever made a split-second decision in the moment? Realized, holy smokes, I just got caught. And then you make a decision trying to get out of it, trying to dig yourself out, trying to provide for yourself. Ever be in those moments where you're just worried about maybe the foreseeable future because of your current circumstances that you got yourself into? That's where this dishonest manager is in that moment. And he looks to himself. He looks to himself for the way out of the mess that he got himself into. He makes yet this other dishonest decision in the moment that was driven more by his fear of his current circumstances and the uncertainty of his future. Notice what that decision is. This manager makes this in-the-moment decision to meet with a few people who owe his boss money. So when, I, when, I, when I read this and I think about this, I get this picture of the mob boss, right? Hey, yo, come meet with me. I know you owe my boss some money. I'm going to work with you, right? And then you're going to owe me. Let me make you an offer that you can't refuse. That's the setting of the scene that I see. I don't know what it is for you, okay? But just let that influence your thinking for a minute. <laughs> he meets with, meets with some of these people, and basically what he does is he essentially forgives some of their debt against his boss. I mean, you think about it, like he's supposed to bring his public record to his boss, right? Or, or the record of his management, he's supposed to bring that to his boss. And so before he takes it to his boss, like, well, let me just like cook the books a little bit more. 
It's never going to know, right, when this happened. Essentially, what this man does is he takes his best skill and puts it to work again. What do you think of this guy? What do you think of this guy as you think about him? How slimy do you have to be, right, to get caught in some grievous and erroneous sin like this to then continue to make more decisions that then take you back into more mistakes, right? What, what, what kind of guy is this? It reminds me of some slimy loan shark or car salesman or like lawyer that you give a bunch of money to that doesn't follow through on what you ask them to do, right? We know those stories. That's kind of the feeling I get as I read this story. So think about this, though. Even though we reject, like, the distasteful and dishonest and selfish kind of sinful ways that this manager deals with his circumstances, we, we kind of have to admire his, like, calculated and clever, wise maybe even, intelligent decision. Don't we? Like, Jesus even says that the manager's boss in verse 8 says, says that, that boss commended the dishonest manager, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. I think this is the point of the entire story. I think this is the reason that Jesus is sharing this story. He's wanting to point out that, hey, and this guy was super shrewd. The meaning of the word shrewd could be worked out in intelligent, wise, carefully thought out, pre-planned, this dishonest manager thought really shrewdly, really wisely about how he was going to get himself out of this situation. He was a clear level thinker, yet I would say I think that his path was going to continue to lead him into further harm. He was thinking pretty wisely, so to speak. Notice what Jesus says about shrewdness. Jesus says that the people of the world are often more shrewd or intelligent or clever in regards to their worldly wealth than believers are with matters of eternity. We all know what this is like, right? Like it's too easy to get caught up in earthly wealth and earthly possessions and earthly needs and earthly concerns. These are the things that catch our attention. These are the things that keep our focus. The earthly things in front of us is what we usually think about. It's far too easy to be intelligent schemers with all of the earthly things that we have while being thoughtless and lazy and wasteful with matters of eternity. The essential thing is that as Jesus is standing there telling this story, he's looking around at a group of people who were tasked with the responsibility and the privilege of living out godliness in front of the nations around them. And I think there's a bit of an underlying current in all this as these people are complaining and whining and essentially rejecting Jesus and the message of the gospel. I think he's essentially saying, hey, hey, I'm here to see how you've been doing at stewarding God's grace to the nations around you found you wanting, which is true of all of us. And no matter how shrewdly we manage our daily lives, no matter how shrewdly or intelligently we attempt to manage our spiritual growth, the reality is that we are still wanting. We will never arrive until we get to heaven. The problem is that we oftentimes think we have arrived, much like this religious group in the text thought they had arrived. 
And so Jesus is saying, hey, you haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. You've actually been lazy. It's far too easy to be intelligent schemers with earthly things while being thoughtless, lazy, and wasteful with matters of eternity. But this is how Jesus kind of makes the turn from telling this story about a dishonest manager to then explaining the connection between worldly wealth, eternal friends, faithful stewardship, and being mastered by money in verses 9 through 13. But before we turn into that second half, I want you to think about this dishonest manager again for just a few moments. I want you to think back to the fact that he got caught swindling. And though he was smart in the way that he was trying to swindle his way out of this, he's, he's to some extent no different than you and I are. We attempt to find a way to um, cover our sinfulness and cover our mistakes as we continue to make more mistakes, living out the same patterns we've always lived, which means we look to broken pots ourselves to somehow find some sort of healing and wholeness. And the reality is there's no wholeness or healing you or I will find by looking within. It's got to come from the outside. This is why the message of the gospel is so good. That as you and I remember and realize just how broken we are, we can look to Jesus who is whole. We can look to Jesus who is perfect. We can look to Jesus who is complete to come and to rescue us and to save us and to change us and continue the, the pattern of transformation in our lives whereby we can be made right with God on a continual basis. This is the message of the gospel. There are far too many of us all of us in this room, they find it so easy to fall back into patterns of looking to ourselves, our selfish ways, our, our broken patterns of our lives to change us, to find wholeness and healing, and there's none to be found there. The only place that you and I have hope in is in Christ. My prayer is that we would not be like the religious folks in this text who are always whining and grumbling and complaining against Jesus because of the work that he wants to do, but that we would be more like maybe the disciples in the text who are just sitting at his feet listening, saying, Jesus, I need you to change me. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples to use their worldly wealth to make eternal friends. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And this portion of what Jesus says like confronts our tendency to see our worldly things as, as a means for more worldly things. Like catch the pattern that's going on here. It's funny how we often use our worldly things which will rot and rust and waste away to accumulate yet more worldly things which will rot and rust and waste away. It's a broken cycle. It's a broken cycle of using broken things to accumulate more broken things. Leads to more brokenness, not wholeness. It's a failed system of using failing things to accumulate more failing things, which leads to more things failing rather than things being restored or fixed. It's a picture of being used by our worldly wealth rather than using our worldly wealth for eternal purposes. This is what Jesus is combating as well in the midst of this. Think of the people that Jesus was talking to for a minute. 
You think of the religious crowd that Jesus has been confronting in chapter 15 as well as the disciples that Jesus is speaking to in chapter 16. Remember, remember that Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd of religious leaders and tax collectors and sinners and fishermen. I mean, look around the room here. Just look around the room really fast. It's okay to do that. Nobody's going to get mad at you. Look around. Look at the people next to you. Do that now. Look behind you. I don't see anybody's heads turning around. Come on. Come on, please. Thank you. Look around the room. We are a, we are a mixed bag of tricks around this room, aren't we? I mean, you got my friend Blackie over here who drove truck for eons and rode motorcycles, right? Big, bad, tough dude, right? You got that friend of mine over there, and then you have Eric, my other friend over here, who is like a steel worker, right? We're just a mixed bag. You got the Wallaces in the back, my friend Brian, right? Working down at Hastings Utilities all these years. Mixed bag, mixed group of people. Yeah, Andrew, all the way over here to your left and my right, who works on diesel trucks. I, mean, I can go around the room. We are a mixed group of people. There's some people here that have been walking with Jesus since they were born, okay? Almost, like, came out, got born, was, like, in the nursery, and Jesus is like, you're following me, and then it just happened, right? There's many people who have that testimony of God just sustaining them, their, like, their entire lives. And there's others of us in the room that have this, like, insanely crazy story of just crazy things happening in our lives and just been following Jesus for like 15 minutes. That's kind of like me, right? Mixed bag of people in the room as Jesus is talking. And these people are no different than us because they, just like us, oftentimes fell into this broken cycle of valuing and pursuing earthly comfort, earthly status, earthly power, and appearance. You think of those words, status, What's my status? How much money do I make? What kind of house do I live in? How many businesses do I own? This is status. How many cars do I have? How many guns do I have in my collection? Right, Carlton, that's you and me. That's our issue, right? How many guns do I have in my collection? It's a status. How long have I worked in the profession that I've worked in? What's my annual salary? Status. We struggle with that, don't we? Status, power. Who answers to me? Who do I have power over? Status, power, comfort. How comfortable am I, right? Do I have air conditioning in my home? Or do I have a window air conditioner? Is it central air or is it window air, right? Do I heat with wood or do I not? Personally, I think heating with wood is more comfortable. Comfort. Comfort meaning, do I have the things that I wish that I could have that would make me comfortable? There are many of you in this room that I know you've, You've walked through stages of homelessness. You know what it is to have nothing. Yet I think of the Apostle Paul who says, you know what? I found a way to be comfortable regardless of what situation I was living in. Regardless of whether I was empty, regardless of whether I was full, regardless of whether I was fed, regardless of whether I was hungry, regardless of whether I had a place to lay down or a place not to lay down, whether I was in danger or I was safe. This was the Apostle Paul talking later, taking his cues from Jesus, who, mind you, didn't have a place to lay his head, right? But we are always seeking status and control and power and comfort. This is the system that we get caught up in oftentimes. Jesus is speaking to us as that crowd. Think about what this means for us. God wants us to use our worldly wealth for eternal purposes, 
Not for yours or mine's purposes. Not our own purposes. We're not to be like the dishonest manager who is using his skill to only secure him a good place here on earth. We're to be like Jesus in using everything that we have for the kingdom. God wants us to use our worldly wealth for eternal purposes. How are you doing at investing your time, your talent, your treasure in the ministry of the gospel? Are you growing in your practice of giving financially? Not only to the ministry of the local church, but also to local missions agencies, church planners across the country, and missionaries across the globe? How are you doing in that area? Is everything that you have, do you think of it as yours? Or do you think of it as something that belongs to God that you are to manage and care for? It's two different ways of thinking. A non-gospel-centered view of our money and the things that we have is that it exists for us and not for him. This is why Jesus continues to drill down into this principle in verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Like being faithful with what, what we have is, is a matter of being responsible and trustworthy as a steward. Faithfulness is measured by how responsible we are with managing what's been entrusted to us. The key issue here is trust. The question for all of us is can we be trusted? Are we trustworthy? Are we dependable? Do we follow through? When we are given a little responsibility, are we faithful with it? Jesus says that if we aren't faithful with worldly wealth that God entrusts to us, then we won't give us more responsibility over eternal things. The smaller things for us are the things on this earth. Pickup trucks and cars and guns and houses and front and backyards and bedrooms and living rooms. I mean, these, all these things that we own, all the wealth that we have, these are the small things. The big things that we could also be entrusted with are the things of eternity, matters of eternity. Like, how are you doing it growing in God's word? How are you doing it communicating the gospel to others? How are you doing it leading others in holiness? How are you doing it just chasing down the sin in your life and trusting in Jesus day by day? These are the far weightier measures. God calls us to use our worldly wealth to make eternal friends, to be faithful, not dishonest or irresponsible with the use of our worldly wealth. Jesus knows that the issue isn't so much irresponsibility for us, it's not so much just faithfulness. It's really the issue. These are surface things up on top of the surface. These are the flowers and the grass that you and I can see. The real issue is the heart, right? What is it that masters your heart? What is it that masters the desires of your heart? That's the real question. That's the real issue in this text. In verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples not to be mastered by their money. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. What Jesus is talking about here is an issue of slavery. The image that Jesus is provoking here is an image of what masters our hearts, what we are enslaved to, what we give ourselves to, what we give our desires over to. 
It's a picture of what kind of shackles and chains are actually holding the desires of our hearts in captivity. Jesus' point here is that we can be enslaved to money and therefore serve the almighty dollar in such a way that we dig ourselves deeper and deeper into the cell block of our captivity by our in-the-moment decisions to save our own skin. We can love our money so much that we become like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings movies, thinking that everything we can possess is more precious than God. We can become so devoted to building our physical kingdom of wealth We despise anyone who calls us to truly sacrifice our wealth for the purpose of the gospel. We can become so devoted to material wealth and possessions that every shiny new thing grabs our heart's desires to the extent that we despise God. We can become so much in love with our material wealth and possessions that we can actually live hatefully towards God. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and money. Think about what this means for you and I. Ask yourself these questions. Are you serving God with your money? Or has money become your God? Do you love your money and hate God? Or do you love God and hate your money? Are you devoted to God in a way that leads you to despise the control that money once had over you? Or do you actually despise God in the way that your money controls you? My prayer is, is everyone hearing this message would come to a place where they say that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord and their King and the Master Commander of the ship of their lives. That's my prayer. Who is your Master? Who is your King? Put yourself back in this story for a minute and remember. The dishonest manager, who do you think was the King of his life? He was. Who was his real boss? It wasn't the boss that was firing him because he was in control of his life. He was really his own boss. I think the reality that Jesus is trying to get home for us each today is that he wants to be the Lord and King of our lives, Savior of our lives. All of us have lived in ways that we've tried to control our own lives. All of us have lived in ways where we have tried to do what we thought was best and then found that to lead to utter failure. And then in those moments when you find out how bad your heart, and your life are. In those moments when we find out how wretched we really are, where do we turn? Where do you turn? Do you turn back to yourself in that endless cycle of sin and destruction and lies? Or in those moments when you realize just how destructive your life has been, just how wretched you are in front of the Lord, do you in those moments fall on your face before God and ask Jesus to save you once again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this evening. God, as our music team comes forward to lead us in a final song of worship, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts in this area over who masters our lives. But I'm well aware that there are some in the room tonight who have thought that they have followed you for many years who really haven't. They have mastered their own lives. And I know that you want to be the master of their lives. And it's not just an issue of money for us. Lord, I know it's not just an issue of money for us in this room. <laughs> there are so many other things which can grab our attention. There's so many other things which can 
distract us and cause us to despise you? Although I know there are some in this room who have not yet surrendered their need to you, not yet trusted you. They're still looking to themselves and the brokenness in their lives to bring about some sense of wholeness. And God, I, 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 I know that I'm just here as a really weak person attempting to preach the message of the scriptures. And Lord, I know that I, I just bring a certain sense of brokenness to that already and that honestly, if any of us will be saved or changed in this room tonight from this message, it'll be because you do that work through your spirit. So God, I pray that, that you would take us in the broken places of our lives and that you would remind us that in Christ and in Christ alone we can be saved. And that through the shed blood of Jesus upon that cross, our lives can be made new. Please remind us, Father, of your deep love for us. Please remind us this evening of how much you desired each of us in that you sent your son to be broken and beaten brutally and to have your blood poured out and shed on our behalf so that we could be made right with you and forever changed and completely changed and continually changed. I pray that you would remind us of that and that you would preach that message to the hearts of all of us this evening as we close in worship. So God, thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. I love you guys. There'll be a few down front to serve communion to you. The way that we do that is that you come down front as the Lord leads you. You may need to take some time during worship to let the Holy Spirit examine your hearts. Examine where you're at. Examine where your mind has been. Examine where your heart's desires have been. Examine where the activity of your life has been. You may need to let him examine that so that you can spend some time in repentance and confession before him. And let him speak to you before coming and partaking in communion. But also say that communion is an act of, for, for believers, for people who have trusted in Christ as our Savior. If you're here tonight and you have not trusted in Christ, listen, it's not that we don't want you to engage in this, because we do. We really want you to, because what we want more than anything else is for, for people to come to Christ and trust in Him. Um, but if you're not there yet, we don't want to rush things. If the Holy Spirit hasn't led you to that place where you're like, yeah, Jesus, I'm trusting you to save me. And don't come and partake in this because it would just be some sort of a religious activity that would be meaningless for you. And we don't want to create meaningless religious practices. So if you trust in Christ, we invite you to come here in a moment. And as you do, remember, remember that the bread that you take and the juice that you drink is symbolic of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Christ, which should bring absolute joy to your heart this evening. I invite you to come and invite you to worship. Thanks. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.